0: Hey, everyone. Welcome to Being Well. I'm Forrest Hansen. If you're new to the podcast, thanks for joining us today. And if you've listened before, welcome back. I'm joined today, as usual, by Dr. Rick Hansen. Rick is a clinical psychologist, a best-selling author, and he's my dad. So, Dad, how are you today? I'm really good, Forrest.
1: And as always, I love doing this with you.
0: Yeah, I really enjoy doing it with you too, dad. And I've been really looking forward to this episode and really doing this episode with you because today we're going to be doing a deep dive into generativity. How can we become more generative and creative, experience greater satisfaction and harness our natural drives to get more of what we want out of life? We're going to be talking about motivation, about what makes people want to create things, blocks we have to generativity, and how we can deal with common issues like fears of failure. I'm really looking forward to it, in part because I think of you as being one of the absolutely most generative people that I know, so this should be pretty fun. Thank you. We'll see if it's true. Yeah, yeah, and I actually just kind of want to start by asking you about that. Like Ever since I was a little kid, I remember you in a seemingly inexhaustible way to my young self, being able to just kind of like put your butt in the chair and grind away on a project of one kind or another. And you seem to have this almost like endless energy toward creating things of different kinds, whether it was like writing a new book or creating a program or just like working with your clients Mm. as a clinical psychologist for many, many years. And do you think that that's just like true of you at a base level? Or was that something that you had to
1: really like work at? It's such a deep inquiry, this topic. I'm really psyched about this topic. And one reason I'm psyched about it is because for a lot of people in midlife, as Eric Erickson pointed out in his developmental model, they're facing what is a kind of tension or balance or dilemma between, as he put it, generativity or stagnation. Yeah, And stagnation has kind of a negative tone to it, But there can be a feeling that people can get where they've sort of, you know, they're they're in cruise control and it's okay. It's like a tepid bath. It's not horrible, but it doesn't feel that alive for them. So this topic is a really important one. I would say just personally about myself, the root of the word generativity is about creativity, which includes what kind of a life do you want to create for yourself? It really has to do with how do we meet the next moment? Do we feel like we meet the next moment reflexively and automatically? Or do we meet the next moment with some sense of choice and freedom? And then within us, how do we relate to, I think, that nearly universal wellspring of contribution, of givingness that wants to flow through us, shaped by our own particular nature. Yeah, I think
0: it's really interesting that you almost started by talking about choice because choice gets to different kinds of motivations that a person has, right? We can have motivations in different directions. And one of the things that I wanted to explore a little bit during this episode was this notion of different kinds of drive states, like what really drives us? Because creativity, productivity, generativity, whatever word you want to use here, it tends not to exist in a vacuum. It exists because we're motivated to do something out in the world, to create something that doesn't exist, to bring something into being, maybe to feel a little bit better ourselves. right? And motivation can take a lot of different forms for people. Uh, For example, Freud thought that human behavior could basically be boiled down to these two different instincts, what he called the life instinct and the death instinct, sometimes also called the pleasure drive and the aggression drive. So the pleasure drive was this drive that we all have to seek uh, satisfaction and connection with others and meet our basic biological needs. These are things like eating enough food, procreating, and then on top of that, maybe more complicated desires for things like love or creativity or self-expression. And then there's also this aggression drive, and it can include impulses such as like anger and hostility, our drive to seek out danger, maybe seek risks of different kinds. Now, that's one way of thinking about a very complicated territory. And thankfully, our notion about these things has expanded a little bit since Freud was thinking about it in the early 1900s, late 1800s. For example, uh, there's the neuroscientist Jacques Panksepp, who talked about predatory pursuit as being distinct from rage. And I would sort of put generativity generally under this, like under the
1: drive toward mm. aggression. Why not love? Because love often leads to sex, and sex often leads to generate generating children. To take
0: what you were saying a second step further there, dad, sex could include a degree of aggression in it as well. <laughs> so do. these drives can kind of uh, yeah. blur and fuzz together, and I think that that's like a really important point, actually, that you're making here.
1: One reason why I love this topic is because there's so much in it. So yeah, let me just toss in a couple of things that might sort of mess with mess with the program here but we'll see. so one i think about this classic moment i've seen it many times it's worth watching where mr rogers frank rogers the tv personality with focus on children received a lifetime award at the emmys and he basically looked out at several thousand people with probably millions of dollars of plastic surgery and jewelry and couture in the room And he said, we are all here because someone loved us into being.
0: Mm -hmm.
1: So let's just take 10 seconds and be aware of someone who loved you into being. And then there were 10 seconds of silence, tears started to flow, and it was really beautiful. So we love into being many things, including other people. So there is that aspect. Also, when I think of aggression... I think of aggression or aggressiveness or predatory pursuit in pursuit of goals or milestones in the expression of generativity, in the expression of contribution. But I'm not sure that thanatos, known as destruction in part, is itself that generative. So I wonder about that, right? What do you think about that, and how does that show up in your own life? What I what I think is that you're highlighting something
0: that I wanted to talk about, which is our tendency to have an aversive reaction to the word aggressive. Mm-hmm. And I think particularly if you're the kind of person like we are, Dad, we, we tend to be more softer, masculine archetypes, if you want to kind of put it that way, or if you're the kind of person who listens to a podcast like ours presented. By and large, by two people with softer masculine archetypes, then you might be the sort of person who hears the word aggression and goes, Oh, that's bad. Aggression bad. Uh-huh. Right? Oh, yeah. But I, but I think that that's kind of a trap. Yeah. One of the things that I was really curious about during this exploration for myself are the ways in which in my life I've fallen into the hole sometimes of really being aversive toward that energy broadly. Including in ways that it could potentially be useful for me, ways that it could motivate me to produce something that I hadn't produced, to perform at a higher level, to be more consistent in a variety of different ways, or just to kind of get on my own side. Like that, you talk about this all the time, Dad. And I, Kristen Neff talks about fierce self compassion these days a lot that, mm-hmm. that notion of marshaling a quote unquote aggressive drive state toward compassion and prosociality and all of these things that we think about like as as positive things in the world. Does that kind of make sense?
1: So far, definitely. And it really gets at what we mean by aggression. And I know that in preparation for this, and I'll hand it off to you here, you've burrowed into some really cool material about the difference between hate and predatory pursuit. Yeah, let's talk about that a little bit.
0: So the basic notion here is that we have these different kinds of drive states that are just innate to us. They're, they're just a part of the way that we are as people, and everyone carries them around to some degree, and they're tied probably on some level to the way that our brain works. And this is research that I'm only loosely familiar with, so you can finesse me on the details here. But to really simplify it for purposes of this conversation, basically what happened is they they looked at the brains of cats and the circuits that lit up in these brains under different circumstances. And what they found was that the circuit for rage, like when it was responding immediately to something, some aversive stimuli that it didn't like, was neurologically distinct from the circuit for what uh, Punksap termed predatory pursuit. And this would be like when you watch a cat you know, butt up in the air, wiggling away before it's about to leap on top of something. And that pursuit, you know, the, the cat doesn't do that because it hates the bird. The the cat does it because it wants to get the bird. And these things are really actually quite distinct from each other. And we can Mm -hmm. sort of feel into that in our own lives. So if you take something away from what we've said so far, it's that aggression is not an inherently bad thing. It is a drive state that can be funneled towards positive ends or problematic ends. Mm -hmm. And there's maybe some ways in which we avoid assertiveness in our lives and that can actually result in some consequences for people. It can lead to atrophy, it can lead to decay, and it can lead to just kind of not getting all
1: that we want out of life in different kinds of ways. I can locate this personally, because it's really good mm-hmm. to bring it down to ourselves personally. <laughs> yeah, I look at it, the world and I maybe I'm in a work situation, I'm thinking of examples where I'm starting to get mad at somebody or I'm starting to feel like, hey, something's wrong, and definitely in me is mobilized, let's say a kind of, in a Broadway aggressive response to that. I don't like that. And then what happens on the heels of that uh, while I'm being irritated is I realize I need to make something. I need to build something. I need to bring something into being. That's the essence of generativity. We're bringing mm-hmm. something into being that wasn't already there. So maybe I need to bring into being an alliance with two or three other people, I need to bring a report into being in which I do some kind of clever analysis or, you know, I need to bring some shiny object into being that will give me more status in the organization. So then that initially aggressive, irritated response Mm -hmm. moves me into recognizing that which I want to bring into being. And then I pursue that which I want to bring into being like the cat chasing the mouse. Does that fit into the yeah, model? Yeah, no, here? I think that, that that's a example. perfect, a
0: great great way to summarize what we've talked about so far. Okay. And where I would love to go from here
1: is like- I just wanted to make sure I wasn't an asshole. You know what I mean? Or, no, no, I, I, I don't, I, I don't think no so. I mean, g- maybe. Your,
0: your mileage might vary Yeah, yeah. I don't know. You that's should sure. ask other people. In addition world, to being maybe. an asshole,
1: you're really creative. <laughs> <laughs> Thanks. You're, you're a creative asshole, which, hey, is, you know
0: that's better, better ask, than this I guess. You've got to be an
1: asshole. Better be creative. Yeah, seriously.
0: Seriously. Oh, man. Okay, so what I wanted to- (laughs) to kind of turn from here. Okay, okay, okay. So we have that set up, right? We have these different drive states and we have maybe more of a pleasure-driven drive state on the one hand and a kind of aggressive pursuit-oriented is maybe a better way to put it, drive state on the other hand. So what is a generative drive actually look like in practice. And more of like a scientific or theoretical framework for what generative drive might look like can come to us from self-determination theory, which is a theory of human motivation and personality that's really concerned with the choices that people make when their behavior isn't constrained. And that's a really interesting way of framing it, right? Like what do we do yeah. when it's just up to us in a bunch of different yeah. ways? And the, uh, the top line takeaway from all of this work people are naturally intrinsically motivated. They're naturally generative, right? And we can see this in kids. If you watch a kid interact with the world, they're really interested by it. They really care about like how the blocks fit together and how they can get the blocks to stack the particular kind of way that they want them to stack But the problem is that circumstances tend to kind of beat this drive out of us. And as social circumstances aren't particularly supportive to people a lot of the time, what happens over time is we become more and more extrinsically motivated and less and less intrinsically motivated, right? So we have this natural drive state that is seemingly innate to people, is available to us where we can be generative in this way. And really, really critically, this drive state of generativity is an awesome one to hang out in. It tends to feel really good to people. It's associated with like a lot of positive emotion. It's really fulfilling. It creates good outcomes for us. It's a really cool place to sit if you can find a way to sit there. And some people find sitting in that drive state pretty easy. From the outside, I would describe you as one of those people, Dad. Mm. It feels like you find it pretty easy and comfortable and like natural to you, to hang out in a generative place. Then there are some people like me who are a little bit more of a mixed bag. Mm. Maybe you can hang out there. Maybe you can. It's a little tougher to access, a little more or less natural for you. And then there are some people where it's really, really hard to get to that feeling of generativity, that generativity drive state. And then really what I wanted to figure out over the rest of this episode was what is the state how could we access it more readily? And what are some of the big blocks that people experience to getting there? And I would love to just kind of start with you here a little bit, Dad. Was this something that you found natural? Did you have to work to be generative?
1: Well, I want to ask you a similar question, which is, so when I was young, I really liked making forts the idea of making a space that was mine and it was safe and it was comforting for me and it was under my control was very soothing for me. And I I can relate it a little bit to feeling kind of out of control and invaded and pushed around by my parents. And so here I'm doing something that's reparative. And that I think is a kind of a category of generativity to call out Mm. in which the thing we are bringing into being in some ways is healing, soothing, nurturing, repairing something inside ourselves. So I, I love that, I still do. I just love like my whole, you know, where we live. It's like I've, now I have the privilege of being able to make my whole home my fort. You know, not like I think that the hordes out there are gonna come and get me. This is not the, the wall, but in Game <laughs> of Thrones, you know, no, it's
0: the, it's a creative space. Yeah, you can yeah.
1: you can funnel that creative energy in different ways. I kinds like my little place. place. So I that would be a question for you. Did, did did you make things? And I even in my fantasy life, like your mm-hmm. mom would say, gee, Jan, what did you think about before you fell asleep when you were 13 years old? And she would say, oh, I thought about the boy and holding hands, and I just didn't ever really get much farther than that. And okay, Rick, what did you think about? I thought about my bomb shelter, post-nuclear apocalypse, and what I'd want to put into it. So I wanted to make something. Okay. How about you? Man, what an interesting question. Yeah.
0: I, I don't think that I had the same thing that you did. I I remember playing like imagination games and things like that with my friends when I was younger. That was somewhat generative. I was definitely into the the theater of the imagination in that way. But in terms of the the visualization of like my productivity in the world,
1: I don't think I really had that. But right there, you were doing something. You were making something in your own mind. Yeah. And you were enacting it. You were creating, you were making a play. You were making a story with your friend in our backyard for hours at a time. You guys were into it. What is it that you liked about that? Um, Wow. This is so not where I thought we were going to go with
0: this, but I think it's really interesting. Um, I I loved the imagination of it. I liked how free it felt. It felt extremely fun. It was very immediately rewarding. I think that's a huge part of it.
1: Which, Which was more rewarding, that which was made or the process of making?
0: Oh, it was, it was all process. We, we rarely got to the end of a story. Right. We would almost always get 80% of the way through, be like, okay, we basically know where this is going to go, and then we would just do a different one.
1: Yeah, I think that was really true for me. I mean, I liked my little forts and where the twigs were and the, the branches and you know the, the sense of protection and all that. Mm-hmm. But it was really the process of making that was very enthralling, it drew me into its spell. And I think there is something about actual generativity that goes to some material from Daniel Winnicott, where he talked about transitional objects, like the bunny rabbit, the stuffed animal, is known by the three-year-old as both dead and alive. It's kind of in that in-between space. And I think when we're making something, often in the making of it, in the generating of it, being enthralled, it's a little bit like being under a spell. We are in the thrall, the spell of that which is being made. It has a little bit of that feeling to it. You're conscious, you're deliberate, while also being open to intuition. You could apply this to making a particular dish, a meal, You know how you're going to craft your, as I did earlier today, your omelet right? <laughs> Avocado and tomato and shiitake mushrooms and curry and I, I, I Provence you and your curry and your omelet.
0: man, I don't, I don't know. I don't know. This has been a long <laughs> argument in our family about whether or not curry belongs in an omelet, but Rick absolutely believes that it does and believes so very <laughs> strongly. Cheese, but I, yeah. I love that we're talking about this, dad. And the reason I love that we're talking about this is that it feels like you found a really cool Trojan horse way To get into, like, what are the emotional experiences that tend to support this generative state? And so let's like parse out some of them really quick here, right? What was I feeling when I was being all creative in the backyard? Or what were we feeling together when we were writing a book together? Or what were you feeling when you were, you know, scheming up your future bomb shelter or whatever it is you're you're, you're going to do? And here's some aspects that stand out to me. First, I felt really capable. I felt like I could do it. You know, it was possible for me to create this story with my friend or write this book with you. In other words, I felt basically competent, you know? Mm. Then you're making your omelet. Who's choosing what goes in the omelet? You're choosing what goes in the omelet. So you're autonomous, right? You have this like basic kind of autonomy that's happening. And then really interesting, in two out of those three examples, there's a sense of relationship of some kind. Like, you and me had a sense of relationship when we were writing the book together. I had a sense of relationship with my friends when I was playing in the backyard. Maybe when you're writing in general, Dad, when I think about you like writing the Just One Things, your newsletter, things like that, you probably have a broader sense of connection and relationship, even in just like a a purely conceptual way, with the people Mm -hmm. who are going to be reading them in the future, hopefully getting some kind of value from them. Yeah, yeah. Yeah. Now, really interestingly, those three things competence, autonomy, and relatedness have been identified by SDT, what I was talking about earlier, as these fundamental psychological needs that tend to lead to more intrinsic motivation, right? And if you have an issue with generative drive, there's a pretty good chance that you've got an issue in one of those three areas. So it can be really helpful to kind of take a look around, look at yourself, look at your life, whatever it is, and ask yourself, huh, each of those three areas, competence, autonomy, relatedness, how am I doing these
1: days? I think that's actually, for us a, a truly brilliant observation on your part. Oh,
0: thank you. I've
1: never heard anyone connect those aspects of self-determination theory to people feeling bottlenecked, mm, uh, stagnant mm. in the expression of their own generativity. That's really, really cool.
0: Awesome. Yeah, no, I'm glad. And like, to me, to kind of simplify this, I feel like we make stuff when we feel that we can make stuff. It's possible for us to create. It's not just theoretical. Like We're actually capable of doing the thing. And then second, when doing that thing leads to some kind of a good end, it's enjoyable, Mm. it gets us something, it gets other people something. Uh, Maybe it's connected to important interests for us. In different kinds of ways. And without those two things, man, it is really hard to be creative or generative. And there are so many different things that can come up that can block our ability to access those two experiences.
1: There's something in this as well. These different lines of poetry and lyrics from rock and roll music and (laughs) Leonard Cohen <laughs> are just rippling through because your are your, your predominant influences in life from a
0: literature <laughs> perspective. Right. Poetry right. on the one hand and rock and roll on the other. I love it, Dad.
1: <laughs> yeah, in the sense also that, well, the first opening lines from the Dhammapada, you know, mind mm-hmm. is the maker of all things, right? And so as we face our lives, do we orient to our lives as something we are making Or rather, as something that is made and just given to us over which we don't have autonomy or the competence to change. Mind is the maker of all things. And also, as a point here, if mind is the maker of all things, can we generatively make the mind that is the maker of all things? Can the mind itself be like the garden or the canvas? or the frying pan in which we then make things happen. And very much your focus and mine is to be generative with regard to the mind itself. I feel like some of what you're saying here, Dad, gets to
0: the attitudes that we have about ourselves, which relates to kind of a being well greatest hits topic, which are like the stories that we tell and which is tied to our self-concept. And so something that I would love to take a second to kind of explore with people who are listening is do you think of yourself as a generative person? Mm. Do you think of yourself as a creative person? Do you think of yourself as somebody who can affect change on your world in different kinds of ways? Because that's the core of generativity, right? Like, again, competence. We feel like we can do it. And then autonomy. We feel like it's up to us, like we have agency in different kinds of ways. But it's common when we talk about something like generativity for people listening to maybe feel something like, I'm just not a generative person, or, like, I feel trapped or stuck in different kinds of ways. I can't change my environment. And what I found, at least in my life, is that th- this thought becomes such a self fulfilling prophecy in mm. so many ways, right? It, yeah. it, the view itself becomes a deeply problematic part of the system. You know, that view becomes attached to our self concept and that short circuits any change that we can have. Because we're gonna talk during the episode about things like uh, satisfaction experiences, Uh, like we were talking about our creativity experiences. Just the stories we told were suffused with so much like enjoyment and positive emotion, right? Those satisfaction experiences are a huge part of what helps people keep on going when they're creating something, they feel like they're experiencing wins along the way. Mm. We're also gonna talk a little bit about like breaking things up into manageable chunks and uh, finding ways maybe to relate to other people more positively or like dealing with our own tendencies, learning how to brave failure a little bit more. None of those things are possible if we short circuit the whole process by saying, well, I'm just not a generative person. We can't get to any of the pluses if that pre existing view is dominant in our minds,
1: going back to my own childhood and young adulthood to your question, I gradually developed the attitude and sense that I was the architect of my own mind. And a very, a very important area where we can be generative is the generating gradually over time of causes and conditions inside our own minds that help us, be, help us to be happier, more effective, more at peace. That's a very important domain. And I think many people are actually quite productive inside their own minds, in terms of skillfully being with what's there and then gradually nudging it over time in a better direction. Another area or application is, do you feel like in some ways you're the architect of your own life? The, you know, you have to deal with what's given to you, but overall, you know, do you work with the materials? Are you the director, ultimately, of that particular, you know, approach to the characters in the script and the settings that you've been given? That's another major application, I think, of generativity. Mm-hmm. And then it's also true that, in my experience, many, many people have a have a contribution they long to make. Deep down, I think for a lot of people, there's some kind of outward flow that moves through them, that's important to honor and pay attention to. And I think people sometimes don't listen as much as they should to that which is kind of calling to them for so for a little help to come into being for real in the world. And yet when they do listen to it, whatever it might be that they want to bring into being, that's been maybe bottled up or sidelined inside previously, wow, that bringing into being is deeply healing for them and important for them. If you're like me,
0: you've probably started to pay closer attention to your long-term health as you've aged. Turning 35 was a bit of a wake-up call for me, and I'm always looking for good sources of information, because it's often really difficult to separate fact from fiction when it comes to our physical health. We had Dr. Tim Spector on the podcast a few years ago. He's a professor of genetic epidemiology and the scientific co-founder at Zoe. And the Zoe Science and Nutrition Podcast is truly one of the best resources out there when it comes to this stuff. With the help of world-leading scientists, they help you make smarter health choices every week. And you don't have to just take my word for it. Avid podcast fan Stephanie's Apple Review says the Zoe Science and Nutrition Podcast is a life-changing, science-based, myth-busting podcast that's a must-listen for anyone who eats food and wants to understand how it affects their body. With the Zoe Science and Nutrition podcast, you can join Stephanie and millions of others transforming their health. Find it wherever you listen to podcasts. This episode is sponsored by BetterHelp. What would you do if you had an extra hour in your day? We're all looking for more time, but time for what? It's easy to waste time doing the things that don't really matter, and it can sometimes feel like we never have time for what does. Learning what we really value, and making it a priority in our lives, is something therapy can help us with. As you probably already know, I'm a huge believer in the power of therapy, and working with a therapist has made a huge difference in my life. If you're thinking of starting therapy, give BetterHelp a try. It's entirely online and designed to be convenient, flexible, and suited to your schedule. Just fill out a brief questionnaire to get matched with a licensed therapist, and you can switch therapists at any time for no additional charge. Learn to make time for what makes you happy with BetterHelp. Visit betterhelp.com/beingwell today to get 10% off your first month. That's betterhelp, h e l p.com/beingwell. As somebody who's really struggled with skin issues like acne over the course of my life, I know just how great it is to not stress about what's going on with your skin. That's why I'm excited to tell you about today's sponsor, OneSkin. Their products make it easy to keep your skin healthy while looking and feeling your best. No complicated routine, no multi-step protocols, just simple, scientifically validated solutions. The secret is OneSkin's proprietary OS01 peptide. It's the first ingredient proven to work with the aging cells that cause lines, wrinkles, and thinning skin. And as somebody who's used plenty of complicated routines in the past, I love the simplicity of using their OS01 face topical peptide. Just cleanse, pat your skin dry, and apply it twice daily. Get started today with 15% off using code BEINGWELL at oneskin.co. That's 15% off, oneskin.co, with code BEINGWELL. After your purchase, they'll ask you where you came from, and please support the show and tell them that we sent you. So then a huge question is what stops that from happening for people. Or alternatively, what might help somebody identify just generally kind of a generative drive inside of them that they want to sync up more with throughout their life, even if they don't have a have a target in mind right now. They're just like, you know what? That would be a good skill for me to have more of. Yeah. So this gets us really quickly to agency experiences, which to me are just the combination of competence and autonomy. And if you've listened for any period of time, you knew that agency is uh, one of my favorite things to talk about. Mm-hmm. And a huge part of agency is differentiating between what we can and what we can't influence and not becoming defeated by all of the things that we can't influence, right? We accept that we can't control everything, and we don't let that stop us from figuring out the things that we can influence a little bit in our lives, right? Now, this inherently means braving experiences of failure. Because Mm -hmm. along the way to figuring out what we can change, we're going to bump into a lot of stuff that we can't change. And even when we can change something, initially, we're probably not going to be great at whatever it is that we're trying to do, because that's just the way things work, right? The first step to getting good at something is being pretty bad at it. So a huge variable here is how we interpret and understand, and just generally like integrate our failure experiences of different kinds. If if failure is just unbearable to us, then it's going to be really, really hard to be a generative person. And I would love to get uh, your your take on this, Dad, because I was thinking about this, and I'm sure this isn't an original thought. But like, if you watch a kid play with their toys in different ways. Like they've got one of those block sets with the the pegs and the holes and they're trying to put the square peg in the square hole and the round peg in the round hole, right? If they keep on trying to put the round peg in the square hole and it doesn't fit, they don't get mad at themselves. They might get mad at the peg or at the hole Mm. or they might throw the thing into the air or whatever it is, but they don't seem to interpret that as, oh, I've failed. I'm a bad person. And Mm. somewhere in there, as we grow up, we start to interpret more and more of our failure experiences as being reflective on us. And so I wonder if part of the problem here for people with experiences of failure is actually just an attribution error, where we incorrectly attribute the fault to ourselves when the reality is that there are 10,000 circumstances going on out in the world that have probably influenced our ability to succeed at this thing. And I'm wondering what you think about that.
1: I think you're exactly right. A lot of times people are afraid to try from the get-go. They have a history of associations to you know generating something and then running into the room. Look, look daddy, look mommy and mommy daddy are just too busy to look or they look at it and go, "Oh, I think you need some painting classes." Then you're deflated, you never want to have that experience again. So you just give up. You just stop trying, right? So how do we deal with that? And I think you're exactly right that the failure is not in your own self. You're learning. You're doing trial and error. I think it gets to, in part, why are we making that thing? Mm -hmm. Are we making it in ways that are externally referenced? Like I'm making it because I want their approval. I'm making it because I want them to think it's great. And there's so many examples of where the world turns a blind eye to something that turns out to be really great later. So I think uh, to the extent that uh, we're creating for the sake of an external result, then we are vulnerable to the consequences of failure. Mm. But if on the other hand, as you point out, if we're creating more for intrinsic motivation, then no matter what happens, you can judge what you've done based on its own worth. I've been in the world for quite a while, and um, you just start to realize that popularity is a fickle, fickle beast. So out of your control. At the end of the day, maybe give a little bit of attention around you know that result from the world, but wow, for sure, uh, I think well over half <laughs> of our motivations. And I'm giving myself a pep talk here too, because I can get caught up in trying to impress people and all that should be intrinsic. Then if there's a quote unquote failure, oh well,
0: yeah, it's funny because so much of the time people talk about like self-compassion as a key resource. Mm. And I think that that's connected in part to what you're saying here. Like find that intrinsic motivation. Don't listen so much to things outside of yourself and, you know, be kind to yourself along the way because failure happens to everyone and yeah, and you have to make a ten thousand pots before you make a pot that you like, all of that good stuff. And yeah, that's absolutely a key skill in this is develop to develop the ability to to have some kindness. Just direct it at yourself along the way. Because again, what I was talking about earlier, if like failure is a totally unbearable experience, then we're just never going to create anything. Yeah. But I wonder about subverting the whole process by just understanding that it's not always about you in that way. Like, you only have to be self-compassionate if you're also kind of self-critical, right? If you think that there was something that you, like, did wrong in some way, and now you have to apply some self-compassion to it around. But if you're just able to, like, look at the whole playing field, kind of like the toddler with the blocks, and go, hey, I'm going to learn how to turn this block a little bit differently. And then guess what? It'll fit in the hole. And it's not about me being a good or bad person. It's not about me needing this deep reservoir of self-compassion. It is purely about competency. And I've located the problem as not like a personal moral problem, but as a very practical, competency-driven issue, whether it's in myself or it's in the people around me. And now that I've kind of positioned
1: the problem in that way, I can actually do something about it. Right. You're just working your way through it. I love your framing there. And and your emphasis on agency as an active process in which we're discovering things, we're investigating things. It's interesting, uh, actually one of the seven factors of awakening in Buddhism is investigation, just like you're saying here. Yeah, totally, and I, I wonder if,
0: if part of the ability to like investigate at all gets to what we were talking about in the beginning about the notion of all of this as an aggressive drive. And Mm. what moves somebody into pursuit versus more passivity? Because investigation is like an active pursuit, right? Mm. And earlier we were talking about the nature of generativity as being like a little bit aggressive in nature, having like (laughs) a little push with it. And I think that we've kind of gotten to a place with things where we are so aversive to that push that it stops us from investigating at all. And I wonder about that sometimes. I wonder about that in myself. I wonder about that in you know, people I'm friends with or people that I just like bump into out in the world. And I kind of wonder how you think about it, Dad, because I think of you as both a very soft person on the one hand, and also somebody who has joked in the past that you have three of the genes for OCD or whatever it is. Like there's a way that you want things to be in the world and you're really pretty happy to like enact your will upon the world in different ways to make it like be that way. And I'm just wondering like how you've balanced that.
1: This is a fantastic inquiry. So one point is that it's been said, I don't know who said it first, that much as Freud pointed to sexuality as the taboo that which was unstated, that's which was left out in the Victorian era. The acknowledgement of aggressiveness is a kind of taboo topic in modern, well-behaved Western cultural circles. And yet we have the return of the repressed. So A. B, I was just thinking back about myself and my attitude as as a kid toward a page of math problems. And I don't know how you were about them But for me, each one of them was like combat. Each one of those long division problems. I I, I did not have this mindset for the record. (laughs) But I love this for you, so keep going. I was going to dominate that problem. I was not going to be defeated by it. It was not going to beat me. That was a very strong predatory kind of zeal. So even though I slightly balked a little bit at your formulation here, I think that's part of it where we just take this attitude that you know, I'm just not going to get defeated by my email inbox. I'm going to get to the bottom of it. I'm not going to be uh, defeated with regard to this project or work product I'm generating. I'm going to do it perfectly or, you know, appropriately, right? So I think that spirit, you're right, is way too suppressed to, uh, Gosh, I think about this comment this mentor of mine made long time ago. We were at some kind of shishi casual backyard party before you were born. White wine, quiche, we're all sipping it and being all awake and conscious and new agey. And he looked around and he said, Man, what a bunch of tame monkeys, right? Tame. So when you think about your own creativity, like you've really been very generative with this podcast. I know that very much so. And, and even, let's say, in your dance world where you're doing mm-hmm. improv, you're creating, moment by moment by moment, the dance. Is there a mingling in you of this sort of predatory zeal? Yeah. I, I, think, it's, I think it's actually a huge
0: gap for me right now, which is, is part of the reason that I suspect that I'm, I'm focusing on it a little bit in this conversation. Ah. Most of the time when I experience myself as dropping into more disinterest with my work yeah. or a lower mood state, to maybe say it in like a broader way that could be applicable to people who are listening. It's because I don't have this. Mm. It's because I don't have this sense of pursuit. Yeah. And I'm going to keep on using the word pursuit instead of aggression just because I think the word aggression has a lot of connotations for people that that can get really mixed into this in a way that's like not super useful. But when I get to slovenliness and decay and I just want to sit on the couch, it's because I'm not in pursuit. Yeah. And when I'm able to access this feeling of pursuit, all of a sudden everything starts happening for me. And so a lot of this, I think, for people is just about seeing these things as systems, which is what they are. Low mood states are systems. Low energy states are systems. Like how can we get to the end of a day and be exhausted at the end of it when we feel like we haven't done anything that day? That feels like an oxymoron, right? But it's true for so many people. Hmm. I get to the end of the day, I had so many days in my life, where I get to the end of it, and I'm like, ugh, I just didn't do anything today. But I'm also tired. How is that possible? It's possible because I was doing plenty of things. I just wasn't doing the things that mattered. Yeah, And a lot of that was driven by my own choices. And it was driven by this uh-ness that kind of suffused everything. In part because I think there was a part of myself that was kind of afraid to like really go to bat in the ways that we're talking about. To really marshal that more pursuit orientation in my own life. To go after this stuff that I really cared about and to have a certain damn the torpedoes about the whole thing. And so I, I just think that part of the reason that I'm identifying this as like a thing for people is because it's been a thing for me in the past, to answer your question.
1: So for a person to be productive, that's a kind of generativity, right? As they go through their day, I'm thinking that part of it has to deal with fears of failure. So we've, we've named that to some extent. Second, about productivity, there's, man, there's just work ethic. Whether you like it or not, you just do what you gotta do. And, you know, you do your job. I think there's that part. Then I also wonder, Forrest, about the aspect of purposes or passions living through you. Like, for me, I got pleasure beating each one of those math problems. It made me happy. (laughs) What I mean, (laughs) that kept me going through all 20. I liked it. I enjoyed it, right? So what do you think is missing for people who are not so generative, not so productive? Is it a lack of enthusiasm or being lived by some purpose, meaning? This is a great question. I think it's all of those things.
0: Um, As I was diving into this material, I did identify some things that I think can be can be ways in for people who maybe struggle with like activating that feeling of generativity, and one of them is basically the first one that you said, which is enjoyment. Again, let's get back to that—the the stories we were telling at the very beginning of the episode, the the bomb shelter story, uh, <laughs> the playing imagination in the backyard, writing the book together—you know, whatever it is. I'm so
1: yeah. revealed
0: here. <laughs> okay, oh, <thank> good. <laughs> You know, like what? what, So what's going on in those stories? Enjoyment, 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 enjoyment everywhere. And this gets to what's kind of what's sometimes referred to as the cardinal rule of behavior change: what's rewarded is repeated, what's punished is avoided. What we do is what feels good to us. Yeah. Period. End of story, over and over and over again. So let's look at the model that we kind of carry around for a second about generativity or productivity, right? Like, what's what's the model that we have about it? The model is that it sucks. These things are fundamentally uncomfortable. We don't want to do them, but we have to figure out a way to do them anyway. So what do we do? We learn how to become more efficient so we can spend less time doing them. Or uh, we learn how to increase our distress tolerance skills so that we can get better at bearing the pain of doing this thing over and over every day, whatever it is. As long as that's the model that we're carrying around, we're always going to lose. We're never going to be able to generate consistently because we have a framework of it as painful and bad. Mm. And we're not rewarded by it, so we're not going to repeat it. So what we really need to do, like the secret weapon in this whole thing, is figuring out how to make these things, how to make generativity broadly. Like you were saying, Dad, we can work inside of our own minds and kind of change the structures that we have around this stuff. How can we make generativity something that is actually enjoyable for us, something that feels good to us, something that we want to do naturally, So we don't need to develop so much distress tolerance or or efficiency or productivity or whatever. We just want to do the thing. And the secret to that is enjoyment. Mm -hmm. Over and over and over again, it's enjoyment, which is tied to what I'll call satisfaction experiences, feelings of competency. Again, remember, back to the beginning, what are those three things? Competency, autonomy, relatedness, right? What do you think about this? Because I tossed an idea out there that's a bit of a big idea that you know we have a model of generativity as it being painful and we just need to learn how
1: to do this painful thing better well there there are a lot there are a lot of things in the mix here for us i think i think you are really right first about the importance of dusting off and making room for healthy aggressiveness predatory zeal joyful pursuit we need to make more room for that that's really good second I think what you're doing here around naming some of the ways in which being creative or generative or productive is framed as it sucks, it's hard. We have these stories of the tortured creative genius, people staring at the blank page. So I think naming that's really important. And then there's, for me, there are these three kind of intersecting themes at the heart of what you're getting at. First is what's your why? What do you care about? If you care about, like you did with Simon, you know, inventing, generating a beautiful story, you do it. I, I cared about my bomb shelters. <laughs> they, they made me feel better. <laughs> I cared about them. Uh, I, I care about helping people. I, you know, I, I, so I'm generative in my therapy sessions. I care. So what's your why? And I think there's something here where we try to get people or people try to get themselves to be productive about things they don't really care about. They're not generative because they just don't care. And you can kind of flog the horse if you have to, to don't do this to a real horse, you know, to get it up the hill, but um, they don't really care. So finding things that you really care about and finding why you care. If you're in a role or situation, you have a job, you have a function, what's your why for being the the best busboy in the world because that's your job. You got to do it. You got to support your family. What's your why for doing that job really, really well, Um, right? So finding your why, that's important. Second, I think in what you're saying is dealing with internal resistance that maybe is afraid of succeeding or is afraid of trying and failing, right dealing with your internal resistance i think that's really true and then i think there is just a place for cultivating habits that are tenacious mm-hmm. persevering work ethic internal reminders that you know you're going to get to the end of the page of math problems maybe you don't particularly enjoy getting them done right but you got to do them you're in school so you can remind yourself it takes you about 2 minutes per problem you're going to be done in 40 minutes and then it's time to watch football you know, yeah, yeah, those kind of totally. skills. So I guess those those three stand out for me. What's your why? Finding your passion, removing internal impediments, and then, you know, cultivating the attitudes and the discipline of a work ethic along the way.
0: Yeah, I think that's a fantastic list, Dad. And part of the first one, I think, because you're right, we all have things in life where maybe they're not our our heart orientation. But we have to do them for whatever reason we got to cash that check or we you know just got to get through school or whatever it is you're doing in your life like we we got to do stuff that we don't want to do sometimes okay so can we still find aspects of that thing or aspects within that thing that allow us to be generative around it and this is where I think satisfaction experiences come into it. Uh, yeah. And this is a little bit based on my own personal history and like what does it for me and you know, your mileage might vary with some of this. But I think that it's just generally true that people like to feel competent. Like competency is really a key. Um, I don't know what exactly the right word is here, like a key thing, particularly for infants in the learning process. Mastery
1: motivation, they call it. Yeah, mastery yeah. motivation. Even young chimpanzees. You know, uh, yeah. rough and tumble play, uh, rats, little young rat pups, they they want to get better at things.
0: Yeah. Yeah, yeah. So we, we have this mastery motivation. It is a drive. We want yeah. to master stuff. Yeah. But then stuff happens. The world happens to us. And most importantly, we feel incompetent in a lot of different ways over and over again, often because we're being taught poorly, frankly, by the, the systems that we have around us or our caregivers or whatever's going on out there. So, a key skill in this, in order to feel competent, is we need to find the right amount of hard of something. Like, think back to those math problems, Dad, that you had. My bet is that they were matched to your ability level, right? I could get them done. Mm-hmm. You could get them done. They were the right amount of hard. And this actually gets to research on flow done by uh, Mihaly Chickmet Mihai. And one of the coolest things about the research on flow is that Cikmet Mihai found that flow states were more likely to emerge for a person when their skill was appropriately matched to the challenge that they were facing. Mm -hmm. In other words, if things were either too easy or too hard, they really had a tough time getting into flow. And this means that in life broadly, one of the skills that we can develop is getting good at calibrating difficulty. In other words, making things a little bit easier if they need to be easier for us in order for us to feel competent. And hopefully along the way, not like beating ourselves up if we're doing something in a slightly easier way or if we make it feel a little bit easier.
1: It's a beautiful sweet spot, isn't it? It's it's about that zone of proximal development that Vygotsky talked about Ooh, where it's, yeah. right. It's not, it's not automatic at this point and it's not impossible. Mm-hmm. It's in that intermediate zone, right? Where you can kind of grow into it. And then from there, we've, hopefully have a win of some
0: kind. Mm -hmm. We've calibrated things appropriately, Dad. And then what do we do with that win once we have it, right? And this is essentially your work in a nutshell. This is taking in the good, which is the savoring piece of it, like turning that win into something useful.
1: Well, that's right. And basically installing in yourself that association between effort and reward. There's so much about conventional schooling for the majority of people who go through it, which is anti-motivational. Because think of conventional schooling for most people, you included, I think, in which there are 10,000, 10 million experiences in which there's effort without reward. And effort itself is mildly uncomfortable, often. The concentration, the push, and the turning away from immediate gratifications of other kinds. So here you are with kids, they're making efforts, they get through the math problems, but for them, there's no sense of reward. So you're basically counter conditioning effort and then you have a bunch of old fogies like me who start whining about millennials Oh, they don't have a work ethic. Well, that's because we trained effort out of them. Isn't that interesting? Yeah. Wow. yeah, it's horrible. and so it's it's really important to rehabilitate effort and so that and to re-reward re re-enliven effort itself and we can help ourselves to do that so that we just like you're saying, find the satisfactions related to effort, flag them so that you're conscious about it, and then use the psychological technologies, the neuropsychological technologies of internalization, taking in the good, so that again and again and again, you are hardwiring proper associations uh, between effort and reward, which then will incline your brain increasingly in the future to make those efforts because it anticipates rewards.
0: Really, really, really quickly, we've talked about taking in the good and the heal process at at some detail in previous episodes of the show. But I would love it if you could like go back to yourself using the math problem as an example, okay, not necessarily what you did, but what you might do today if you were approaching that math problem through the lens of trying to associate the satisfaction with the
1: effort. Does that make sense to you? Yeah, first, raise your arousal level if you're already half asleep and dull and de-energized, it's hard to experience reward when you're that Mm, way. mm -hmm. So there's this kind of sweet spot. If you're overly energized and you're almost manic, then it's hard for internalization to occur because you're too agitated. On the other hand, if you're in the midst of, as the Buddha talked about, sloth and torpor, (laughs) you used... Nearby terms earlier about yourself, you're not going to experience anything. So, you want to get a little bit energized initially. All right. And then, as you do it, you would look for things to like. Mm. What's pleasant for you? You know, I like feeling that I'm going to dominate this problem. That's predatory zeal, basically. I'm going to do it. I'm going to win. Right. So, you have that kind of feeling or whatever. Then you're doing the thing. And then, when you succeed, Slow it down, like you pointed out earlier, bite by bite, and recognize, oh, you're moving from wind to wind to wind to win. I have memorialized your phrase, Forrest. I've tattooed it on the inside of my eyelids. Book the win. Yeah, totally, totally. And then when you're done, I find it also, it's really quite helpful to be aware of the part of your mind that is sort of the old view like, oh, page of math problems, horrible. And then try to have your new mind that recognizes it didn't take that long. It was weirdly fun. You were victorious. You know, you, you did it. You got it done. No one can bug you now about it. So you have the bliss of relief, right? Yeah, totally. They got nothing to find fault with. I love that one. Get the teachers, the principal, the parents off your back. You did it. Right. And live in that experience that feels so good while looking back at that old grim bummer, yeah, uh, uh, or part of yourself that just thought it would all suck. Right. The part that said it would suck and realize no, old part of me, you're wrong. It didn't suck.
0: Yeah. It wasn't yeah.
1: ecstatic, but it wasn't horrible. And I'm the kind of person who, when faced with a sheet of math problems in life that takes other forms, I'm a person who can stare at it for at least a little bit, but then steps into it and gets it done. You know, my friend Tom, you know, the story, we would have our fence broke down and, you know, I said, hey, Tom, can you help me fix the fence? So me, I would be like writing a PhD thesis about how to fix the fence. Tom, he just stepped into it. He started grabbing boards and lifted a hammer and started pounding nails. And I was like, oh, wow, he just stepped into it. Uh, And so you can generalize this, this attitude of stepping into it, you know, that you experience in one area into other areas of your life, too.
0: Great summary and a great way to put something that can get a little complicated for people, I think. And I I do want to ask you one more question about the sort of heel of it all, if you will, which particularly the absorb step, because a lot of the time when I talk with people about, you know, taking in the good or people come up to me in the grocery store and ask me about something which has happened a couple of times these days, which has been totally cool and totally, totally bizarre, but totally awesome. And something that people will say is, you know, I try this process. I get it intellectually. I understand what I'm supposed to do. There's no lack of understanding. I, You know, I'm having an experience. I try to make it big. And I I try to absorb it into myself in some kind of way or, like, feel it sink in or kind of make it a part of me. And it just kind of slides right off. Like, I, I just have a hard time with that part of it. As you've done this work with people,
1: have you found any things that tend to support that step? Great question. Technically, the distinction between enriching and absorbing objectively is that when we enrich an experience, we are creating a sustained, intense, widely distributed through the nervous system, pattern of activation in the nervous system. Mm. In absorbing, we are sensitizing the nervous system so that this enriched pattern of activation is prioritized for storage, in long-term storage. It's kind of like we can turn up the volume of the song that's playing, and we can increase the gain and the sensitivity of the recording apparatus. You kind of get, or a different metaphor is, You can have a sauce that's very thin and boring and not much going on, or you can really concentrate it, really enrich it, really put a lot of curry in it to make it just awesome. And then it sits on top of a sponge, okay? And it's the sponge really receptive and absorbent? Or is it really hard for that rich, orange, bronze, Mm -hmm. lovely curry Mm -hmm. liquid to sink Mm -hmm. into the sponge? So it's the two together. So that's kind of how to think about it. Emotionally, experientially, enriching feels like help the experience be big and lasting and absorbing is like it's coming into your body, it's spreading inside you. Okay, in that context then, one way to help it is to realize that inherently, if you are staying with the experience, your brain is designed to internalize it. Now, it may take repetition, it may take time. So even if you do not have the feeling of it coming into your body and spreading in you, like a liquid moving into you or an energy coming in or a warmth moving into your hands you know, or sifting down into the lower levels of your own psyche, these are images and cues I'll offer, even if you don't have much sense of that, just by staying with the experience, keeping those neurons firing second after second after second, that's going to tend to promote their wiring and thus the formation of a lasting neural trace in the networks of memory. That said, Mm -hmm. a key for absorbing is paying attention to what feels good about it highlight the enjoyability. Yeah, again, those enjoyment experiences. Yeah, satisfaction experiences. Yeah. It's
0: funny how it had like over and over and over, yeah. and we've just kept on coming back to like, how can you make this experience a bit more enjoyable? Yeah, How can you tune into those feelings of whatever you want, like peace, contentment, and love is, is a phrase that you use a lot Dad, in your work, like things that just feel good as we're doing them. Like, can we make it something that we want to pursue? as opposed to something where it feels like we have to flog ourselves up the hill in order to get ourselves to do it.
1: Basically, what you and I are talking about is working backwards from what is it that you want to make in your mind that lasts. Yeah, The good that lasts. We want to make the good that lasts, right? There's this, for me, it's incredibly central line in the Buddhist teaching about train yourself in doing good that lasts and brings happiness. Mm -hmm. The good that lasts and brings happiness. And so one of the things that you can make that lasts is a sense of joy and pleasure associated with the view of yourself as the maker, the architect, the director of your own life. And a view of yourself as someone who is resourceful and productive and honorable in your work ethic. And you can associate over time happiness with viewing yourself in that way. And you can repeatedly internalize, like that's how you see yourself. That's who you are. And that self-concept, that's something you talk a lot about, that self-concept then is the frame in which you receive the next task or you hear about an obstruction to something you're trying to generate, you're trying to accomplish in the world yeah this, too, is something we can make inside our own mind,
0: yeah. I love that. And just to kind of put a bow on this episode as we get toward the end here, I think part of what you're what you're speaking to are just the high leverage things that we have in our life, like the little behavioral things that we know make a difference for us. You're identifying one of these, which is like how we conceive of ourselves. That's a big, big, big thing, but it's a critically important one. But thankfully, there are probably some smaller levers that people have also. I know for me, when I engage with generative work, like meaningful work, early in the day, my day is always better. When I'm able to start doing it as the first or second thing that I do, I get to the end of the day almost always, and I go, today was a great day. It makes a big difference for me how much time I spend on my phone. It makes a big difference for me whether or not I have some kind of a social plan in the evening, because that tends to motivate me and get me engaged and excited throughout the day. Those are big levers for me, and a lot of this is going to be about identifying the the seemingly small things that you're willing to change that can have a really big impact on these larger boulders that we're trying to
1: move. I think that's great, and as we finish here, too, in the heart of so much of what we've talked about with, I've learned a lot in this conversation for us. For me, a lot of this boils down to caring. What do you care about? What do you actually care about? Going back to my riff about how we train effort out of people in school. It's like anti-effort. And then we moan and groan like they don't have a work ethic, right? I think in a lot of ways, we kind of train caring out of people because we we bombard them with messages of futility about the world at large you can't do anything about. Why care? And I just think, uh, to the extent as an individual that it's hard for you to give your heart to something, that it's hard for you to let yourself care, really look at that. Not in a way that's shaming yourself or lambasting yourself, but really looking hard. Wow. If you have a fundamental, general, global issue with Letting yourself care about some things, you know, find your why. A lot, I think that's the tension in in that, that Eric Erickson talked about and I started with stagnation or generativity. You know, to, to get out of stagnation, you have to let yourself care about something. Uh, even if you're trapped in a whole set of obligations, inside your own mind, you can still find things to care about. If only the transformation of your own consciousness over time. As is often the case with
0: our conversations we could just keep on going with this like there's so much to talk about (laughs) and we've already gone for considerably longer than we normally record for Uh, but I, I really loved this I thought this was fantastic I felt generative during it I hope that people feel like they got something out of it and I just had a great time today talking with you about generativity dad beautiful thank you I felt like I learned so much prepping for this conversation today with Rick about generativity. It was profoundly interesting to me. It was a really cool process to go through the research on this. And I would love to take this recap at the end to just walk you through how I think about this subject of generativity and whether or not we have a generative drive. And if we do, how can we access this thing? And the premise of this conversation in part is that we have all of these drive states that are present in us. And if we didn't have these drives, we would have no motivation to pass on our genes or go and get something to eat or whatever else it is that we're trying to accomplish in our lives. And Freud articulated this through the language of the aggression drive and the pleasure drive, but we've really become a lot more nuanced in how we think about this over time. And generativity is loosely tied to the aggressive drives that we have, and we spent a lot of time in the beginning of the conversation talking about the nature of that word aggression and the aversive relationship that we really understandably have with it, because obviously aggression creates a lot of problems out in the world. But it also tends to be an energy inside of us that can be very motivating and very powerful and really lead to a lot of creation if we're able to harness it in useful ways. And that took us to the work of Yak Punksep on Predatory Pursuit, And the distinction between predatory pursuit and other feelings where we're really going after something that matters to us versus feelings like rage or anger or more destructive impulses. And this then took me to self-determination theory, which has to do with are people intrinsically motivated and what tends to move us more toward intrinsic motivation or extrinsic motivation. And the basic finding, to really simplify here, of SDT is that we have an innate drive to grow and explore and self-actualize. Rick talked about this in terms of mastery motivation in young children. We really do innately want to get good at stuff. And we can think about that as a sort of form that our generative drive takes. Now, some people naturally have a lot of access to this generative drive. And we said a number of times throughout the conversation that Rick is one of those people. He finds it pretty easy to hang out in that kind of a state. So then what is it that promotes that if you're somebody who maybe has a harder time, like me, accessing that kind of generativity? And self-determination theory claims that there are these three fundamental needs that we all have that tend to lead to more generativity. And there are needs for competence. We want to feel effective and capable in our actions and in our endeavors. Autonomy, and this is our need for personal agency, self-direction, self-direction, And the freedom to make choices that are aligned with our values and interests. And then finally, relatedness. And this is our need for connection. And we use these different examples of our own behavior. Uh, Myself playing these kind of imagination games that were very generative when I was younger, or maybe writing uh, the book Resilient with Rick. And then we use this kind of a running joke, my dad's tendency to want to like perfect the house or clean up the backyard or hey, maybe build a bomb shelter one day. Who knows? Who knows? as examples of like generativity, right? And what could be enjoyable for us in those experiences? Like what were aspects of those things that made us do that? And over and over again, we came back to those three things, a feeling of competence, like we could be successful, like we actually really could do the thing. Then second, a feeling of autonomy, like we were the ones that were in control of our behavior and we could make choices in the world that then affected the world around us in meaningful ways. And then third, relatedness. There was some broader sense of connection, maybe even really just very loosely, a kind of general sense that maybe our activity would like ripple out from us into the world in some kind of a useful way. And so if you're somebody who feels like they lack a generative drive, there's probably an issue in one of those three areas. And we spent the next 40 or so minutes of the episode talking about some of those issues and how we could deal with them. And we started with competence and autonomy which to me gets to agency. I think of agency as basically the combination of the feeling of competency and the feeling of autonomy. And a key part of agency is differentiating between what we can and can't influence, right? We have to learn the things that we can do something about versus the things that we have to accept in life. But part of that learning process inherently involves failing. It involves failing over and over again for different reasons. Uh, Sometimes we fail because we realize that we've bumped into something that we just can't change or we just can't influence. And sometimes we fail because we're just not good enough at something yet. We're not competent enough, and we need to improve our competency in order to be successful. So a huge variable in this is how we relate to failure. How do we process it? How do we integrate it into ourselves? How do we learn from it? And there are two kind of general approaches that you can take around failure experiences. And the first one is try to bring more positive emotion to it. Self-compassion in a nutshell, right? Can we be kind to ourselves when bad things happen? Can we be kind to ourselves when we do something just a little bit wrong? Do we immediately go to self-criticism or can we find something else? So that's one way in. Extremely useful. Very, very powerful. I recommend the work of people like Kristen Neff and others who have done a lot of work on self-compassion. Okay, great but there's this other way to approach it, this other thing that you can do, and that's to get better at attribution. I use the example of a young child playing with different blocks and trying to put like a square peg into a round hole and realizing that they can't. When they realize that they can't do that, they don't get mad at themselves. They get mad at the block or they learn how to use the block a little bit better. It's not personal. They understand that this is an object that lies outside of themselves. And think about just how great that would be to have that in your life, right? To have the ability to look at a, a, a problem or a situation or an issue and just be like, you know what, this this just ain't about me. Or hey, maybe I need to become a little bit more competent, but that's not personal. That's not like a deep failing of mine. It's just a skill that I have to acquire. Throughout the conversation, one of the topics that we kept on coming back to was essentially what's the right amount of pursuit or the right amount of even aggression, to use that word again. And I talked for a little while about how in my life, when I've felt myself slow down, become a little bit less effective, become more disconnected from my work, feel a little bit more blunt, and ineffective throughout the day, less generative, to just kind of sum it up, it's almost always been because I lacked that pursuit instinct there wasn't something that I was really going after, that I was really, truly, authentically pursuing in my life. And the lack of that led me to stagnate after a fashion. And I think that throughout my life, I've been very careful about that kind of pursuit-oriented energy, in part due to a lot of the, the conditioning that we have around healthy versus unhealthy versions of masculinity and what it means to be an excessively aggressive person as a tall, physically fit, white guy in the world. And those were things that I wanted to avoid. And I'm glad that I did that and I feel good about that. And at the same time, I think that I've had to kind of reintegrate some of those more pursuit-oriented energies into my life and kind of reclaim them in a way that felt really good and useful and productive for me. And if you were somebody who heard like aggressive drive or the word aggression at the very beginning of the, the episode and went, oh, I don't want that, well, you know, maybe it's something to explore. Maybe it's something to look into, just the models that we have about this kind of a thing. And the ways that those models obviously impact how we are out in the world. And then we spent the rest of the episode talking about how to activate our generativity. And for me, the first step is understanding what's called the law of effect. You know, generativity is a behavior, so we need to have a basic understanding of how behavior works. And the law of effect is a pretty simple idea, right? Behaviors that have satisfying outcomes. In other words, things that feel good are more likely to happen again. While those with unsatisfying outcomes, things that feel bad, are less likely to happen again. Really, really basic idea, right? We do what feels good, end of the day. And that's why over and over again through the conversation, Rick and I were talking about enjoyment, savoring, experiencing wins, booking the win, to use a line that I shared on an earlier podcast episode. And we can see an immediate problem here when it comes to generativity, because the things that feel good often are not things that are super generative or that are really like tied to our generative drive, right? They're often like sitting on the couch and swiping through TikTok or whatever. So the crux of this whole thing is really not about learning how to stick with a painful experience for longer and just increase our distress tolerance because productivity just kind of sucks. No, the crux is figuring out how to make generativity enjoyable for us. Like, what are the aspects of it that are truly enjoyable? What are the ways that we can make it more fun? How can we make that thing that like, we don't really want to do right now something that we actually do want to do just by playing around inside of our own minds? And a huge part of this gets back to what I'll call satisfaction experiences. We learn in part by experiencing victory by booking wins of different kinds, right? And Rick had this beautiful riff about how essentially we disincentivize this in how we teach people things. Like people over and over again in school have no experiences of mastery. They have no experiences of winning. It's all pain and failure. And we effectively just like beat this out of kids in a lot of ways. And so we need to really go out of our way in adulthood to reprogram how we think about these things and to really deliberately try over and over and over again to experience every win we can out in the world because they can feel rare and fleeting and uh, the world is not set up in a lot of ways to give us a lot of wins without us going and searching for them. And a key part of experiencing wins is finding the right level of challenge. And this gets to the research on flow from Mihaly Csikszentmihalyi. Mihai. Basically, we get into flow when we have a challenge that is suited to us. It's the right level of hard. It's not too easy, and it's not too difficult. And there are a lot of different ways in our lives that we can calibrate difficulty. I think about when I first started going to the gym. Most good exercise programs, if you want to do some weightlifting, start with zero pounds on the bar. You're just learning how to move the bar. And for a lot of people, the bar itself is going to be plenty heavy all on its own. But even if you're a strong person, you start with no weight on the bar. And the reason for this is you learn technique, you add five pounds to the bar every time you go and work out, and over time you figure out what the appropriate level of challenge is for you. And this is what I like to call the small bites approach. Writing a book, big bite too big of a bite, too big of a meal for one sitting, right? But you can write a sentence. You can write a paragraph. You can write a page. If we break big challenges down into their constituent pieces, we can experience success more often because we get to feel good about every step along the way as opposed to just letting ourselves feel good when we get to the end of the journey. Then once we've had that win, a huge question is what do we do about it? And this gets to all of Rick's material Related to taking in the good that we explored here again at the end of the episode in some detail. From there, one more thing that I would like to mention at the end of this recap that we talked about a little bit, but that I would like to just talk about a little bit more here at the end. And it's this idea of what are you already generating? Because a lot of people, when they listen to podcasts like this, probably just go, you know, I'm just not a generative person. I just can't generate things. Like, that's just not me. I feel like I can't change the world around me. I feel like I'm kind of stuck. I'm kind of trapped. I just, you know, I just, I, I can't do this. I don't know what to do. And I can only speak personally here. And I'm sure that that is an incredibly difficult experience for somebody who's in that spot. For me, when I've been in that place in the past, what was really helpful for me was to see the things that I actually was already generating because low mood states and low energy is a system right it has inputs and outputs we put things into it and things come out a lot of the inputs we have no control over there are circumstances our environments uh, the people who are around us the you know social class we were born into you know whatever all of this stuff that is incredibly high impact but these systems do also include our choices and a lot of the time what happens when people hear that there are things that they can't control is they go, well, I can't control everything, so flip the table, I can't control anything. But it's actually the opposite that's true. The fewer things that we have under our influence, the more important that it becomes that we influence them in positive ways. And a huge breakthrough for people is when they get to a place where they're able to recognize all of the inputs in the system of their life and the associated outputs. One example of this is that people with high anxiety tend to generate few what are called approach plans, but a lot of avoidance plans. In other words, they're really, really good actually at generating avoidance of the things that they don't like, but they're not so good at generating the things that they actually do want. And I can tell you as somebody with a tendency toward anxiety, I have lived this in my life. And when I was able to recognize all of the avoidance plans that I was creating in my life, man, it it was revelatory for me. All of the little ways that I just pushed things away, pushed things away, pushed things away, and just never pulled anything toward me. And yeah, that can be a really uncomfortable process for people, but I got to tell you, it is a incredibly powerful one, and it has been so useful for me personally. I hope you enjoyed today's episode. This was a long one, a deep one. We explored a lot of material, and I would love to hear back from you about how you felt about it. Is this the kind of episode that you would want more of? Was it kind of a lot, and you would have preferred if we had broken it into smaller chunks? Maybe make it two or three episodes as opposed to one long one here. Let me know what you think. If you'd like to support the podcast, you can find us on Patreon. It's patreon.com slash beingwellpodcast. And for just a couple of dollars a month, you can support the show and you'll receive a bunch of bonuses in return. If you haven't subscribed to the show yet, but you've made it this far, for starters, I'm surprised you should subscribe to it now. That would be great. We would totally love that. And hey, maybe the best way that you could help us out is just by telling a friend about the show. Until next time, thanks for listening, and we'll talk to you soon.